Hello and welcome to The Point of Everything. My name is Owen O'Sullivan and today's guest on the show is Ashley Keating from The Frank and Walters. This was a live podcast that was recorded in the keynote as part of the inaugural Cork Podcast Festival in the middle of October. We did it the day before the 30th anniversary of The Frank and Walters' very first show. That was in the Barras all the way back in 1989. I held on to it for a few weeks to make it coincide a little bit with a couple of upcoming Frank and Walters shows. So on the 7th of December, they're playing in Whelan's in Dublin. The following week, they're playing the fourth year anniversary at Connolly's of Lep, which has been reopened for four years, which is great. It's an absolutely brilliant venue and uh, you should definitely get down there if you can. And I mean, I'll go on record right now. I think it's the best pizza in Ireland. They've started doing pizzas earlier this year and they are just so good. So great. Uh, so that's December 14th. If you want some pizza, a slice of pizza and a slice of the Frank and Walters. December 20th, then they're in Cypress Avenue in Cork. So five days before Christmas and they're all kind of anniversary shows. So I guess you can expect songs from across the range that they have out there over the course of their career. I really enjoyed this chat with Ashley. I think he was uh, pretty honest about everything that's happened. It seemed like he was pretty much an open book. I was thinking that we would touch on almost every year that they were a band. But it did kind of, I guess, focus on the early days, on those first couple of albums, on the formative years. And then those two great, great albums, Trains, Boats and Planes and Grand Parade, which really, really do stand out. And they really, really hold up decades later. They already did a 20th uh, anniversary a couple of years ago for Grand Parade. And it's such a great album. It's one of uh, the great Irish albums of of the last, I don't know, how, how, however long you want to go back so I really enjoyed chatting with Ashley I feel that I could do another interview and maybe I will try and do another interview with Paul Linehan on vocals some other time maybe and get like the next stage of the story with Frank and Walters but for now this will have to suffice so this is myself chatting with Ashley from the Frank and Walters in the keynote as part of the Cork Podcast Festival. Delighted to finally talk Frank and Walters with Ashley. And we're doing it on the absolute best weekend that we could because tomorrow, and I had to double check this because I remember seeing it earlier uh, in the year and I was like, got to remember this date, October 14th, 1989. That's, to- that's tomorrow, 30 years ago. It was Frank and Walters' very first gig. Played it in uh, De Barra's. Down yeah. in Tonakilty, what? Can the, Irish, you... the Irish Riviera. <laughs> That's what I hear. That's what I hear. Um, what do you remember about the gig? Because uh, <laughs> I wouldn't have thought De Barra's would be your first gig because you're a very city kind yeah. of band. Uh, how, how, did, how did it come about? If What you can remember of it and like what was the gig like? Well, we'd been, um, we'd been playing kind of around and kind of dodgy bands, like all bands that start out. With a even dodgier names, um, things like Willie Whiplash and the Surgical Collars. We were in we were in them for a while, and uh, what was the other name? The Freshwater Chickens. Great so, um, names. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we kind of wanted it. We went into the practice room and we kind of decided not to go out and do a gig until we were ready because we'd made that mistake. We'd went out and been absolutely terrible and got booed off the stage so we did kind of got a bit bored of that <laughs> so we spent about two years in the practice room and then we wanted our first gigs to be outside Cork or outside Cork City anyway at least so yeah we um, all hopped into a, a brown Ford Escort and made our way down to Clannacilty 
actually around now, probably we were practicing for it. Um, we were extremely nervous. And we went down, um, had a few pints of cider to kind of settle the nerves and went on. And basically we were playing to kind of friends and family. I think there was about three or four people we didn't know at the gig. But um, Bobby, who was running the bars at the time, I guess he still is. Um, He's still in the general vicinity. Yeah, yeah. He, he liked us and invited us back a month later. And then, so we, we, we went back a month later and there was, you know, again, we knew most of the people, but there was, might have been like eight or, eight or ten people we didn't know. And it just built from there. And it kind of, our confidence grew and we kind of, I think by the end of that year, we'd done, I think we'd done about seven or eight gigs and we kind of started to have a sound. So over that Christmas, we went in and recorded a demo and then that demo got picked up by Satanta Records, which was in 1990. And then, you know, we moved over to London from that. So, But I think, I think a lot of it stemmed from not going out doing a very raw first gig, like kind of honing our sound and getting a little bit better and a little bit better so that we were, you know, that, you know, as a, as a, a new band doing a first gig, we were that little bit more polished. I mean, polished is probably the wrong word, but we were we were just a, a little bit of bit of a step up from what we had done before with Willie Whiplash and the Surgical Collars and people like that. Was it just like a name change that you wanted or was it a totally different sound that you were going for? <coughs> Um, I think that's like that's one of the problems with every band is is finding your sound. I mean, it definitely took us a few years. You know, if, I mean, when we would have started, pre like we would have been, you know, a typical kind of, you know, intercert or what's it called now? Junior cert. Junior cert. Yeah, yeah, it was the intercert back then. The um, we would have kind of all got instruments around then, and spent the summer practicing. So that I guess that was about that was mid eighties. So there was a lot of um. Like there was kind of a lot of synth and there was a lot of kind of American stuff in the charts, kind of rock stuff. And, um, you know, w w we kind of didn't know what we were. And then like every song sounded different. Like we'd have a song, it would be like slightly funk influenced. And then we'd have another song and it would be like, you know, trash metal influenced. So we were a bit all over the place. But by the time we found our sound, I think the first time we found our sound as a band it was that song Michael, which is still in the set. I mean, like, f funnily enough, Michael is actually an 80s song. It was like the first time it was performed was in 1989. So um, I think that 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 kind of gave us the con like once you hit on a sound that gave us the confidence to tackle other songs, you know. And th then when a thread kind of runs through different songs, you kind of feel more more of a band. So I think finding the sound was the hard thing for us. Like we, we were always able to knock out songs. We were always able to, you know, play instruments at a kind of a, you know, a semi-professional type, <laughs> type level, like, like still to this day. Um, but it was, it was having that sound, you know, something unique to, to your band. And I think that song, Michael, kind of kick-started it. Um, and from then, we kind of moved out, and there's, I think there's still elements of of that song, Michael, still today. I, I think we've got, I mean, I know one of the hardest questions you can ask a band is describe your sound. Um, one of the things that I think, I, I think we've got 
a naivety that's never left us, which sounds a bit bizarre because we've been in the music business for 30 years or a day off 30 years. And, um, you know, like myself and Paul are in our 50s now, but there still seems to be like a little bit of naivety in the sound that that I, I would hate to lose. And it, it, like it all stems from them early tracks, I think from, you know, Michael and Walter's trip. And, you know, obviously a lot of our songs were named after people. But, um, and that seemed to be quite unique to us, you know. And maybe just set the scene for what Cork was like, because uh, the the way that the sound kind of came about, you didn't, you know, you had some funk sounds or something with the other bands before you kind of defined it. I guess when I think about Cork music, I think about the likes of Nun Attacks and stuff, and that seemed to all kind of end by 1984, 85, that kind of first wave yeah. of bands kind of stopped. And then were there other bands that you were kind of uh, looking to or uh, enjoying, or did, or did it seem like there was a little bit of a, a trough? In a, I, t I think in typical Cork fashion, like, and, and I think it's still the same to this day, like Cork bands don't want to sound like any other Cork bands. And we were we were the same. We we didn't want to sound like another Cork band. I mean, like the bands that we would have been going to see um, around that time would have been bands like Into Paradise, A House, Blue in Heaven, even Something Happens to an extent. And, um, you know, we would have been kind of inspired by them you know they they always they always seemed that little bit slicker and they always had more roadies than carpets <laughs> so it gave us something to aspire to um as well in the uk at the time i suppose a, a band like the wedding present would have been a huge influence on us and getting to, like they would have played in cork regularly in sir henry's and that and getting to see them was um a huge inspiration i think I think they played in 88 in Henry's and I remember us like pretty much going into the practice room for about three weeks you know we were so so blown away and it kind of focused and focused us into a, a certain direction made 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 our sound a bit more frantic um I think we were like we were always afraid of playing too fast uh but like watching the wedding present gig and watching the energy on stage and the whole kind of freneticness of it, you know, made us abandon that. Like, we, we kind of impose kind of silly, looking back, I suppose, there's silly rules, but we just kind of impose rules on ourselves um, back then. But uh, I, I think after that gig, like, the rules just, you know, got pushed to one side and, you know, kind of, you know, inspired us to, to kind of carry on and, you know, go take that route. The Buzzcocks actually would have been a band as well, and the undertones, they, they would have been big influence. And then from a songwriting thing, it was, you know, your classic songwriters like Lennon McCartney and Simon Garfunkel and Foster and Allen and people like that. And, and, uh, <laughs> and where did you meet um, the Linehan brothers, Paul and Niall? Were, um, were they just like school buddies? In school, yeah. yeah. Me, me and Paul were in the same class, and obviously now was Paul's brother. So, yeah, I think we met when we were nine. There's actually an interesting story. My, my father and um, Paul's father, <coughs> they would have know, known each other. They, they were living in London at the time, and the uh, my mum was pregnant with me, and uh, Paul's mum was pregnant with Paul, and they met outside Barbara's shop in Balafihan after mass on a Sunday. It must must have been around early early '67, and then I was born in May, and he was born in uh, June. So it was like we kind of met before we were born, and in one sense. <laughs> 
true story. Best friends. <laughs> yeah, Best friends yeah. from the very start. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, like we didn't meet each other again until we were nine. But, yeah, we just hit it off straight away and, you know, just went from there. And, it, like, first of all, it was a classroom band. And then, you know, I suppose Cork kind of, you know, 1988, 89, it was a fairly grim place. Like Fords and Dunlops had gone. So the traditional industries were gone. You know, it was, it was you know, when you left school, that was still, you still, your parents still had to be quite wealthy if you wanted to go to UCC, even, you know, even CIT or what was it called? RTC back then. I didn't know it was called. Oh, yeah. Re- regional Co- Technical College, which is, yeah, which I prefer actually as a name. But <laughs> how informative it is. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, but yeah, so so it was literally you were it was either go to London or the States. It was either emigrate or sign on, and it was, you know. But you know, I mean, having said that, it, you know, we just signed on and played music, so it was that was fine as well. Was that the plan though? Like, I mean, Fontaines are still singing. Fontaines DC are still singing about that now. Like, uh, you know, getting out of the city. You know, just trying to do yeah. anything and getting out. Was that the plan? Start a band, get to tour, go to England, and don't look back. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I suppose, th- like, at that stage, there was no music industry in Cork. And, I mean, like, as a Cork person going to Dublin, you know, y- you weren't exactly the most welcome. Like, there was a scene in Dublin, and it was, like, it was pretty much no outsiders could get into it. Like, it was even hard to get a gig in Dublin. It was hard to get to Dublin back then, oh, though, was, as well. Yeah. It was, like, yeah, five yeah. or six hours, wasn't That's it? That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. In a, in, a, in, a, in a van, like, you'd have to go through every small town in Ireland. So, um, and if you got stuck behind the tractor, sure, you were finished. But uh, it was, yeah, I mean, it was, like, it was the only option to us, like, once we had, you know, like, the, the highest you could go in Cork was headlining Sir Henry's. And once we had headlined Sir Henry's, that was it. It was, you know, it, there was nowhere to go. So it was, you know, do you, do you want to hang around the fridge, fringes of the Dublin scene or do, do you want to go to London, like, which is, I mean... I mean, it's London, New York, Los Angeles. It's one of the three biggest centres for music, still the same to this day. So it seemed, you know, a no-brainer to, you know, get your 25 quid together and get your one-way ticket on the Slattery's bus and bribe, bribe the bus driver a fiver to get your drum kit into the hold and stuff like that. And it was that, that's what we did and kind of landed in, landed in London and just, you know... It was the start of an adventure, I suppose, for us. But it was like we didn't think of the consequences. We just we just went. I, I think we we've always been a bit like that. It's always been there's never been a a blueprint or a plan, which is obviously can be detrimental <laughs> sometimes. Um, but it, you know, it kind of it works other times, and that was one of the times when we moved to London. I mean, we were signed within maybe like three or four months. So. It, um, and back then, you know, you had to have a, a record deal to progress. Unlike now, you know, you had to kind of get onto the music industry train. And, um, yeah, it, it worked out. So was that 1990? Uh, yeah, so, so we would have went over in 1990. Um, we would have done some recording and then came back, um, did some work to kind of get money to do a kind of a proper recording. So I went uh, I went painting. My dad's a painter, so I went painting for a while. And uh, the lads went working with their dad. Their dad's a carpenter, a cabinet maker, and they went doing that for a while. So we saved up a bit of money and then went back to London early 91 and recorded the first EP. And that came out in 91. And then, you know, it was like EP, 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 album, tour, tour, tour. And 
stuff like that. So. And, and the sound was there from the very start, like it, it didn't change much over those EPs. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, like, so so f- from the first gig, there would have been, I think the, the only songs that kind of survived to get recorded properly would have been Michael and Walter's trip. Um, so as as we, you know, wrote better songs, we, um, you know, they knocked out songs that we didn't consider to be good enough. And then, you know, we eventually had a set which would have formed the basis of the first few EPs and the first record, essentially, so... Um, yeah, we all, like we also, for some reason, we we still can't answer this question. But we also decided to get a uniform, so um, we went into Leaders Shop in in North Main Street and asked asked them did they have any old stock that they'd sell us, and we found these kind of velvet purple flare trousers um, and orange polo necks. So we got them, I think we paid a fiver per item. So we got, um, we bought them and that became our, our band uniform. So um, it certainly got us noticed, but t- t- to this day, it's, you know, it's one of them things. I think if you're a band that wears a uniform, that's it. You're kind of labeled with that forever. Yeah, like, yeah. So. It's, it's one of the things that kind of follows you around as well. I don't know if you like care about it or if you cared about it back then, the idea of like, Oh, they're quirky. You know, they're the quirk, yeah, they're yeah, quirky yeah. band from Cork. But that's also a thing that's said about Cork acts as well, like the Sultans of Ping as well. Of course, like yeah, yeah. Quirkiness. I don't know how you feel about it now. How you felt about it back then? Like, do, do you do you regret going to leaders and getting <laughs> the cheap stuff? Um, no, I suppose. Like, it made us stand out from the crowd, which was, you know, which is what you needed to do. And I mean, there there was a time like when we released the second album, which. We, we were kind of very proud of and we, we kind of tried to kind of brush the quirkiness under the carpet. It kind of annoyed us, the uniform thing and the quirkiness. But I mean, you you kind of get over that as well, you know. And um, like a, a few years ago, we kind of brought back the uniforms and it's it's been, you know, that, 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 that's that been good. You just go, go through phases, you know. Um, it's... Yeah, I think when when you're younger, you're a bit more sensitive to you know like criticism and that. And you know there was a time when the kind of the music press in the UK kind of turned on us a bit. That you know we were a little bit upset, but uh, we kind of got over it quick enough. You know, I mean we, we were always we were always lucky in that we had um, kind of us against the world mentality, which means that you could kind of break down a bit of disappointment quite quick and move on from it. So, so I suppose it's just like a, you know, just like a, fo- a football team losing a match or whatever, you know, you dust yourself down and go back out and try and win the next one, like unless you're Ireland who are going to get hammered and choose to <laughs> on yesterday's spirit. display. <laughs> so, uh, when when you came back from that first trip to London from those couple of months in London, did it feel like Cork had changed even a little bit back then? Because it's it's kind of hard for me to see the timeline of of the bands that were forming, but it seemed like there was like a click your fingers and suddenly there's more of a scene there. I don't know when, what the actual timeline for it was. Yeah, yeah, there was... Um, or what the spark for it was even. Yeah, well, I, I guess there was, there was, like the Sultans were doing, were doing quite well and they were getting big crowds and ourselves, now we used to all drink in the same, in the same pub, the Liberty, just up around the corner there on South Main Street. And um, the uh, I think there was 
there was people who was going to the, the bar and they were obviously musicians and they started forming bands and before you knew it there was like there was about 10 or 12 bands in that pub and then there was a few other bars around around the city and then there was the, the kind of the, the two kind of indie indie nights which were in Cork at the time the the Thursday and the Saturday in Sir Henry's and um yeah, I mean, like I remember, like there, there was obviously always a lot of bands in Cork, but you wouldn't necessarily know them because there, there wasn't a hell of a lot of places to play and a lot of bands would kind of play in their garage to their friends and they wouldn't go out and do gigs. But I remember that first time we came back from, from London, there was kind of, I, I think Shane Fitzsimons, who was a, a, a chap from Dublin, who was, um, he was writing for The Echo at the time, and Marty McCarthy, who was the drummer of the Sultans, um, they would have started putting on gigs, and suddenly, you know, there was, instead of being five or six bands in Cork, kind of alternative bands in Cork, doing their own stuff, suddenly there was like 25, and then, you know, I remember coming back from London the second time, like, which would have been Christmas 91, there was about 90 bands, you know what I mean? It just, it, it kind of exploded a, a little bit, and I think it was, you know, people saw ourselves in the Sultans going over to London, and you know, getting reviews in the NME and the Melanie Maker and Sounds magazine. And, uh, you know, there was kind of pe people coming over to the gigs and coming back with these reports. Obviously, it was like pre-social media. So, you know, I'm sure the stories got embellished on the boat home, like after, you know, 14 points of cider or whatever. Um, but it was, you know, like I think bands in Cork were like, we, we want a part of this, we want to do this as well. You know, and there was some, there was some great bands came out of Cork af after that. It was it was just, I think it was, like the way ourselves and the Suttons did it, we, we kind of moved to London. We just, we took that step. Like both bands kind of stepped out of their comfort zone. I mean, the Suttons never actually came back. They're still, they're still out there. Um, but the, I, I think more bands should have done it because I, I think, you know, when you are out of your comfort zone and, you know, you're away from your friends, you're away from your family, it's that's where you sink or swim as a band, you know. And and can 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 you cut it, kind of in a foreign city where, like, you know, we were we were probably at level one when we were in Cork, um, but when we went to London, you see the the level that the bands were at, and we were like, geez, we're gonna have to really up our game to do this. And we did, you know, we, we like we 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 did up our game. We did up our game like fifty, sixty percent. It's a lot of sporting cliches here <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the day yeah. like, you know, but um yeah i think we like we did up our game and we did we were able to compete more of them we were able to compete with uh, with, <laughs> with london bands and, and uk bands and you know it, like we like we always felt we had the songs but it was you know did we have the, the performance ability did we have the ability to hold an audience um in those early days, and we probably didn't, but we 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 adapted, and we soon learned how to how to do it, and how to put on a show, and you know, how to put on how to how to be a good support act, how to be a good headline act. You know, there is a learning curve, and you can't really go to school to figure this stuff out. It has to be, it has to be done on the UK toilet tour, almost. But you know, it was a great experience, and uh, you know, it kind of definitely set us up so that we could kind of cope with anything that was thrown at us, you know, going for, going on. And even when, I mean, after, I mean, we were in London for seven years, but then we lived in the States for two years in the kind of late 90s, 96 to 98. And, um, you know, again, you were starting out again and being on that, 
that kind of, you know, the US toilet circuit. We were, you know, we'd done it before, so it was it was easy. Whereas I always find, especially with Irish bands, bands like the Coronas and Bellex One who were massive in Ireland, and then they, they go over and they're playing in a, um, you know, a, a 100 capacity place in Pittsburgh or whatever. It must be like, why don't we just go back to Ireland and play to like 5,000 people a, every a, night? An ego thing sort of thing. I think so, yeah. M maybe. I don't know whether it's an ego thing. It's just, it's difficult to do. But, you know, like, you know, we 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 never, never minded that. Like, you know, you're always going to be at different levels in different countries, even different cities. I mean, like we've, you know, we, we can play quite big gigs in Ireland, but for some reason we've never cracked Waterford. <laughs> so whenever we go down to Waterford, we're literally playing to 50 people. In fact, when after, after we had, um, after the first album was in, in the UK and Irish charts and that, we came back and I think, think we did our biggest Irish chores, but like 14 dates around Ireland. We did the City Hall here and, you know, played in... Was it the SFX in Dublin or one of the big venues anyway? And um, every single date was sold out apart from the Waterford date. I think there was like about 35 people at the Waterford date. And I think 26 of them had travelled down from Cork. <laughs> it was just whatever reason, like Waterford people just don't get us. Like, which is weird because I get Waterford people, you know? I understand them. But I don't know. So we've never been able to resolve that one, but sure. Did you um, go over to London and you were like, the band was the day job? Did you did you actually get jobs? Or was it like 100% the band touring as much as we could, just playing together as much as we could? And like, it seems like that would have been more sustainable back then than it would be now as well. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, we didn't work. We, we, we were lucky enough actually to get onto it, this this sort of bizarre scheme, which was, which was running at the moment, or, or at the time. And it was a... A, a European Federation of YMCA scheme, which you would move, if you became a member of the YMCA in one city, you could move to another city and you, you'd get, they'd give you a bed and they'd feed you. And you'd, they'd also arrange for you to get um, the dole in whatever country you were in. And you had six months to find a job. So we went over, so we got you know, bed and board, basically, for the first six months, and £11 a week to spend. And um, we went over and did that, which, me which meant that we had a place to live. And um, when that ran out after the six months, we, we went squatting. Um, Keith Key Cullen, who runs Satanta Records, he was living in Camberwell. So we broke a squat in Camberwell, and uh, we were actually living in the squat with the Divine Comedy, who were in London. At the time, I was... Neil, Neil Hannan was down with Divine Comedy on Tuesday night in the Opera House and I was chatting to him about it. He had completely forgotten about it, but um, we were really bad squatters. Like, we, I think we lasted five days and we were like, we can't do this, it's too, it's too scary. <laughs> and um, yeah, so, so we left the squat, but luckily enough, we managed to get back into the YMCA. So yeah, it's fun to stay at the YMCA. Etc. Etc. Et uh, you you mentioned that house as kind of an influence yeah, uh, earlier yeah. on, and Dave Kaus was it was it your first EP that he produced or the or the trains, boats, and planes? The first um, album. He, he produced the first EP and the second album. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. How, that must have been nice just to get to work with him. Yeah. 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 It was. Um, yeah. It actually came about from a, a gig in Dublin. Um, we went up and played the ourselves and the Sultans went up and played 
the attic, which was um, a kind of a, you know, rough and ready venue above above a dodgy pub in Dublin. And um, their manager, a house's manager, John Carroll, came to see us, and um, just by totally by chance. And we uh, go back to that song, Michael. They they actually have a song called Michael as well. And um, he heard he liked that song, and he came up to us and introduced himself. And um, we had a we had a cassette <laughs> of a gig that we had done in um, the Barras actually in Clannacilty. And we gave him the cassette, and my number was on it, my home number, obviously. There was no mobiles. There probably was mobiles, but we certainly didn't have one back then. And, um, yeah, Dave just liked what I heard, and he rang. He rang and said if we were were ever looking for a bit of help. So we we kind of asked him for a support gig, and then with the the whole Satanta thing, when that happened, uh, Keith Cullen suggested Dave... To um, uh, to come down and produce the record, which was great. I mean, he did a great job, a great job with it. And <laughs> like he, you know, I think every band find their ideal producer. Like the Beatles fought, found George Martin or whatever. But uh, like Dave, certainly he get he gets where we're coming from. He knows what we're about. And like he, he actually did two albums. He did our second album and he did our fifth album. He produced our fifth album as well. And he did some pre-production on our sixth album, so we've always worked worked really well with him. But um, yeah, actually, he's got like the first time he came down to Cork, he got the train down, and he he actually couldn't understand what we were talking about. Like yeah, our our, our accents were so thick, and we were so excited. We were talking, you know. He actually thought we were talking a different language. He tells actually a great story of his first time meeting us. He didn't know what was going on. <laughs> so but he, he talked so fast, he's almost hard to understand as yeah, well sometimes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we had him on one side and the three of us on the other side and <laughs> no one knowing what was going on. So it's, ama- it's amazing the record got made. But the, the language of music <laughs> exactly. just bridged yeah. that gap. Yeah. Um, you, ma- you mentioned Satanta Records who put out the first album. Do you want to maybe explain um, them a little bit? They're uh, based in London and they released all Irish indie music. This guy called Keith Cullen kind of founded it. Yeah, yeah. So Ke- Keith was, um, he was a bicycle courier in London. He'd m- moved moved to London when he was, I'd say he was about 17. He just got fed up of Dublin and moved to London, became a bicycle courier. Um, he was a massive music fan. So he started up a label, and the label was specifically... I mean, at the, t- at the time in, in Ireland, Ireland was a really, really odd place for music. You would, you know, a couple of the major label offshoots um, in Dublin, like um, I think EMI had an office. Did, did Universal even exist? And I don't know. Anyway, you'd have a few of the major labels there. And you'd get, a, like, bands, really good bands, would get an Irish deal, but you'd only get released in Ireland. So the international, you know, side of the label just wouldn't care because it was just, you know, they just saw Ireland as a backwater, you know, and unless you were the, the new U2, they didn't, they didn't want to know. So um, he he kind of saw that as all the bands that he liked, bands like A House and Into Paradise and, and you know, bands that he had grown up with, that they were being, you know, held back by the Irish music industry. So he moved to London and started up an independent label called Satanta with the intention of bringing bands over and putting out their first releases and trying to 
get him up the ladder so that a UK label would sign him. And that's that's exactly what happened. Like he, his first band were actually Beethoven, who who would have been an offshoot of Five Go Down to the Sea, who would have, you know, started started in Cork, obviously. Um, so that was that was the first record he released. And the second one he released was The Power of Dreams, who they they moved on and signed a major label. They were on Polydor, I think, and you know they they got quite big for a while. And then Into Paradise came over, ended up on Enzyme Records, and you know, bands started following that, that kind of, you know, hierarchy or that ladder to, you know, indie success or whatever. And um, yeah, it, it was it was great. I mean, it was, you know, it's probably probably the most important Irish label that's ever been in one sense because he got so many bands, you know, started. Like a band that he he didn't work with, but a band that he would have been very kind of instrumental in getting over to London and and putting them together with um, the right people would have been the Cranberries. You know, he would have you know been in touch with them from ver you know very early days, even though he didn't he, you know he didn't release anything by him. But uh, yeah, and then he did it for I don't know fifteen twenty years, and I mean it, now he started to he started to sign other bands. I mean Edwin Collins, who would have produced our first album, and he would have produced an album for a house. He he almost became an in-house producer for Sedanta. He ended up putting his record out, and obviously Edwin is an Irish, and he put out you know a few few records by Verbena, who were a, a U.S. band, and he opened a U.S. office. So it did kind of expand in the end. But I mean for for those. You know, for those early years, kind of like I suppose '88 to '96, it was, you know, it was definitely the most important Irish label there. And you know, it's I mean, it, it, it's its legacy is there to see. There's you know some great great albums got released on that record or, or on that label, and th those albums wouldn't have gotten released if if the if the bands had stayed. Even like I mean, one of my favourite Irish albums of all time is Heartworm by the Whipping Boy, and like. You know, he, again, even though Keith wouldn't have put that out or, or put out anything with the Whipping Boy, he would have been kind of instrumental in pointing the guys in the right direction and advising them, saying, no, don't sign with, you know, the Irish, like, kind of leg of, of, of the label. Come to England, build it up here and do it a different way or else you're just going to get stuck here, you know. And it's like, you know, you're like, you know, Ireland's just so small. and there's no, Like, the, I, I think there's, you know... You, you can you can gig Ireland and you, you you can be massive in Ireland, but it doesn't it doesn't really matter. It's it's such a tiny place. We I think we forget how small we are. You know, in a sense, like there's a big world out there, and if you really want to do something, you need to you need to get out get out of here. Even still, really, I think. Um, I I guess that that's kind of where the cliche comes from, though. You know, like Irish people just care more about a band once they have international success. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah, and and I suppose you know it's if if a band gets that stamp of approval, you do, you are that little bit more interested in them, or you will give them the time of day. I mean, there's just you know there's so much music out there. I mean, there was so much music out there back then, and now it's like there's probably like ten times the amount of music out there. Um, but you know if like if 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 someone gives them a stamp of approval, you're more likely to listen because it's it's very hard to, you know. You know, you know, get through the sheer volume of it. I mean, that's what, like, like that's that's kind of scares me with music. I mean, I used to do a show out in Red FM for a long time, 
um, just just playing Irish music. And you know, in the end, I just didn't have time to get through the volume of stuff that I was receiving. And I I, I had to stop. I had to hand it over with someone to hand the show over to someone with more time. Because it's just you know, it's just the, the, the mountain of stuff. And I still have I still have like tons of CDs at home that I've never gotten to. And it's like you know, because I'm a musician myself, and I know, well, I'm a drummer. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I know the effort that goes into recording, you know, recording something, writing something and recording, and, you know, you put your whole life into it. I, I, I can never bring, bring myself to throw these CDs out. And, and you know, my, my partner is like, will you ever get rid of, like, the three and a half thousand CDs that are in the back room and I, I can't, I can't throw them out. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. I'm just going to have to carry them around forever and just live with it. I can't throw them out. I, I, it would break my heart. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't have a CD player anymore, so I actually can't God. play any CDs. So. <laughs> it's actually hard for me to play CDs. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, back to Frank and Walters. Uh, so Trains, Boats and Planes comes out in 1992 and obviously it has After All on it, and it has so many other uh, great songs. And I was reading, I was going to refer back to uh, Colm O'Callaghan, who writes on the brilliant Blackpool yeah. Sentinel uh, blog website, all about that kind of era of Irish music. And he, he's, I think he's absolutely brilliant. He says Frank and Walters were, the quote, the best pound-for-pound pound pop band the country has ever produced. I don't know, what, what do you make of that now? Yeah, I'd agree it's with pretty, him. pretty nice. <laughs> Pretty nice praise. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It's high praise indeed, coming 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 from him as well. Um, he was a guy that would have helped us out out a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, it's very hard to analyze your own music, but like I I I do like. I suppose the the only thing I could say about it is that we did a twentieth anniversary tour of the Grand Parade about two or three years ago, and like. You know, we rarely listen to our own stuff. It's kind of hard listening to. And when I went back and listened to the album, like we had to relearn most of the songs in it. Obviously, we'd played a few, but um, it it was it was I was really scared going back to listen because I thought it was going to sound crap and dated. But I was surprised at how okay it sounded, <laughs> and uh, d d I think it stood the test of time. And that was. I was so relieved because you know we put so much into that record, and for it to sound bad now would have would have kind of said to me that we did something wrong. But um, and I mean, you know, there's we've we've done stuff, you know, that that electronic inaccessible record we did, uh, the fourth album. Like when we, when I listened to that and going like, what the fuck were we thinking <laughs> that time? But uh, with Grand Parade, it was it, it was definitely it stood the test of time, and I was delighted. But yeah, the, the, I mean, I suppose that after all, after all has just been a, taken on a life of its own. I mean, every few years it seems to rear its head. And do, do you kind of get annoyed that that's kind of like the define like when people think of Frank Walters, that's probably the first thing that they think about. They like they associate that yeah. song now almost with the Young Offenders as well. I guess it's a new generation as well yeah, who's associating yeah. it. I don't know. It's, is, do you mind no, how people no, think about it? No, not at all, not at all. It's like, a, I've never, never kind of, you fall in and out of love with songs all the time, but I've never felt fallen out of love with that song. It's just, yeah. it's just feel good. It's, you know, the, there's a nostal there was a nostalgia to it, even 
when it was new, <laughs> which which is a bit bizarre, but it had you know it's it's feel good, it's nostalgic, it's um it there's a you know there's a, a really good intro riff, there's a kind of a a bada ba bit. I mean you can't you can't argue with bada bas, they're they're great, and um it's just, it's just the song has always been good to us. I mean the the, the weird thing now with the young offenders is that. It's like, you know, doing summer festivals. We played up in Kaleidoscope, which is a an all-ages festival up in Blessington over the summer. And um, we were talking to... A, there was a few kids um, we were just signing things from and that afterwards. And uh, one of the kids, I think she was around eight, said uh, she preferred Billy Murphy's version. <laughs> so... Which is, which is fair enough, like. Um, and any any good story from playing uh, Top of the Pops with it? Did you, did you enjoy the experience? Oh yeah, yeah. That was that was pretty mind blowing. Like we would have. I mean, I know there's there's kind of nothing like Top of the Pops now, but that was the, you know, as a kid growing up, that was, you know, if you weren't sitting down at twenty past seven on a Thursday in front of the TV, you, you know, that was your whole week ruined because you couldn't have talked talk in school the next day about who you saw and who you liked and who you didn't like so that was that was a huge thing for us to get on and then you know we were in the dressing room next to Paul McCartney he was oh, was he on the show as he was, was on the show I was going to well. ask can you remember who else was yeah, playing on yeah. playing on top of the pops yeah which, which was pretty amazing like and um oh yeah there's a picture of you with Paul Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney yeah, yeah. that's right that's right and um all the kids were there so we would have met like Stella and you know, all the kids. Actually, they, they'd seen us on it. We were on a, a TV show earlier that week, a kids' TV show, and they'd seen us on that show, and they liked the single, and Paul knocked on the door, and it, we opened the door and nearly died. <laughs> so, and uh, he said, oh, my, kid, my, kids, my kids tell me that you're pretty good, which was a bit mental. Um, but, yeah, he was... No, nicest guy you could meet very very friendly and Linda very nice as well and he's probably the only person I've ever met who could actually do a good Cork accent he actually had it pretty down like yeah 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 uh, I, don't, I don't think I've heard him do it since like it's it's not something he rocks out when he's on Jimmy Fallon or anything but <laughs> believe me he does a good Cork accent if I ever get to talk to him <laughs> I'll ask him yeah. um there was a five-year gap then between that debut album and Grand Parade Grand Parade which uh Ed Power in the Examiner a couple of years ago he said uh it's it was the right album at the wrong time uh <laughs> I don't know, like, how how you feel about it. Like, why was there a five-year gap? And did you feel that, I don't know, that maybe he lost momentum a little bit or something? <coughs> that, I think that that's what he means when he says yeah. that. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'd, I'd agree with that, too. The, um, yeah, we, sor- we sort of committed commercial suicide, in a, in a way. <laughs> sort of. It was, uh, it was a bit bizarre. I mean, it was, it w- I mean, it was just everything that could go wrong went wrong. With with that with that record, um, no, it was partly our fault. Like we came back from London, kind of wanted to, wanted to get out of like after after all happened. I mean, it went really bizarre. Like we were on a lot of like you'd be in Sainsbury's and like there'd be kind of mums coming up to you with their kids saying, "Oh, can you sign my my kids' cast or whatever?" And you're like, "But his arm isn't even broken." Kind of thing. No, that, that, that didn't happen. But it, it was it was you started like like taxi drivers knew you, you know people in Sainsbury's knew you, and it was it was 
I suppose we weren't really prepared for it. We were, we were kind of indie kids, like who were kind of at, at home with other music fans. I mean, we, you know, go to gigs in London of other bands who were around at the time, like Carter USM or Suede or Blur or whatever. And we'd be up the front like fans, like even though we'd meet the guys after for a beer or whatever. But um, it, it was just it was just odd. I don't think we were ready for it. So we kind of came back to Cork. We were going to stay in London to do the, the next record. And it was just there was so many distractions, you know, so many parties to go to, so much champagne to drink. Because you probably that, uh, were, like, were making money, I suppose. Yeah, we were. Yeah, yeah. But back when there was money to be made. Money to be made from the music industry. That's right. Happy, <laughs> happy days. But uh, we sort of retreated back to Cork. And, um, you know, we, f for, like, the smart thing to do, I think, would have been get an album together and get it out there. But we kind of decided collectively that we wanted to write the best, the best, best we could. We really wanted to kind of push it. We, like, we were never 100% happy with the first album. We always thought the first album was a collection of EPs and other songs kind of thrown together and put out. And we wanted to make an album. I, like, the experience that we had with the first album was that we didn't feel we made an album. And with the second album, we wanted to learn how to make an album. Um, and I think we did, but we definitely took too long. But then, you know, we should have had it out in maybe a year and a half. Through our fault, it probably went on another six or eight months. So we were kind of into two and a quarter years. But then there was like loads of little things happened. There was the label that we were on at the time, Godiscs, got, got sold. We, we had a new A&R man. The person that we wanted to mix the album agreed to mix the album, and we were going off to mix the album. But the A&R man had never booked the studio <laughs> to mix the album. And then it was too close to Christmas to mix the album, and it got put back till the following year. And I think, you know, we, we probably spent between eight months and a year faffing around, and then a series of events kind of caused another year, year and a half, and suddenly you were kind of yesterday's news, and we landed back in London with, with, with what we thought was a great album, but obviously music had moved on, and as well as that, like Britpop began to happen, so the label we were on at the time, they wanted to kind of explore you know, when you're dealing with A&R people and kind of kind of music industry people, it's kind of strange. And they wanted to explore our Britishness and kind of dial down the Corkness. And we were like, like, come on, how, how do you uncork <laughs> us? <laughs> so it was, yeah, it, just, it just wasn't happening. No, there was like, you know, we were still playing to good audiences, but, it, you know, we just couldn't get ramp it up a notch we couldn't we, we kind of realized that we could never get to where we got with the first album so we we just moved to the states basically do, do you say all that with regret like oh if we could do it again we'd do it differently or you like you know what will be will be it's a hard one i i think i think the, the yeah there's there, there's a bit of regret there i mean obviously you know i think when, when you're in a band you want as many people to hear what you're proud of as possible. And we, because of the circumstances that preceded the album, we, we didn't give Grand Parade the kind of chance we felt it deserved. 
But having said that, if we hadn't taken our time with the record, we wouldn't have learned how to make albums. And I, I think that was, we probably would have burnt out and split up a lot earlier. We probably wouldn't be here with a 30 year kind of career, even though I, I guess from, you know, from 2002 when Napster came along and the kind of bottom fell out of the music in the industry, the, um, you know, we've all had other jobs, so we've, you know, but but I, I I think the life the life cycle of the band, if we had really hammered it and tore the bejesus out of it and got back early and got back in and got another album out, I think it would have been three to four albums. Um, I don't think we'd be here, kind of on kind of seven uh, seven or eight albums or whatever it is, and you know we're still we're still actually doing new stuff. We're still, you know, we we probably have most of the next album written it's just a matter of recording it so did did you ever talk about breaking up like was there ever like a, yeah. a, a year where there was no frank and walters or anything yeah well we we had like when like niall the original guitarist would have left in 2002 and we actually had no guitarist for three years between 2002 and 2005 like me and paul were kind of working on new stuff but but we couldn't play live because we had no guitarist um and then, then you know, it was like the kind of, you know, we, we had to scratch that itch and we had to find a guitarist. And we did go out and find one and we started playing live again. And then, you know, 2005 onwards, then we, I mean, we've been playing ever since, I guess, you know. So, um, but yeah, I, I think that that early gap, even though there's obvious regrets about it, but I think, you know, we're in a better place because of it. Another another weird one, actually. Just this is slightly off topic, but I was talking to, to a fella the other day, and um, it was in to, in two thousand and two when like when Neil kind of left the band, and when you know it was very clear that you couldn't really make a living from from the music industry anymore. And we all kind of we we got back into you know getting jobs and stuff. It was you know in it. In one sense, you could look at it and 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 say it was like the day the dream the dream died, like whatever. Because we'd spent like nineteen ninety to two thousand and two was like twelve years making a living from music. But in another way, it's like when when you're a musician, a, a touring musician in a band with a record deal, especially back then, um, you're really not living in the real world at all. It's it's kind of mad. You're living in an alternate universe. So it was the fact. The fact that we almost rejoined the real world was actually brilliant. It gave us like a focus to kind of carry on and to um, to carry it on for so long, you know. So it was like, I mean, what's that? That's we've had nearly eighteen years of that now. So it's that that kind of side of our career is like way longer than the early part of the career, and you know, we we kind of do we only do what we want to do, we don't do what we, what we're told to do anymore, you know, or there's no one to tell us what to do, but it's, it's almost like a better system, like we, you know, when, when we're ready, we go to the studio, when we feel the record is, is ready, we put it out, and to be able to do that, and, you know, still have, still play gigs, um, still play gigs in Ireland, and the UK, and in Europe, and, and stuff, I mean, you know, it's like we were in Japan a few years ago, it was the first time the band, got to Japan, even though there was 
talks about it for years and years and years. Like, there's still kind of places, there's still itches to scratch for us, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I, th I think it's, um, it's been a nice 30 years, to be honest. <laughs> and if, I mean, you've got the stories as well that last last a lifetime. I mean, even just before we we came on stage, you were talking about oh yeah, this little band called Radiohead supported oh, yeah. us in uh, 1992. Yeah, the UK tour. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they were. Um, did Did you think that they'd become the biggest band in the world in five years? I well, when I saw them first, I I, I thought they wouldn't because they, they were they were av they were average enough at the time. Um, it was it, it would have been all the early. Is it the Anyone Can Play Guitar album was the first? Is that what it was called? I think it was, I think it was anyway. But uh, it was, they were, they were like kind of between two stools. But w what I saw of them while they were on tour, like when, you know, every other band we had toured with wanted to get off stage, get the gear packed down and like hammer into the, the creative ale backstage. Like they would go back to the hotel and work on, chord structures and stuff like that and restring their guitars and you know they were so kind of stu so studious and so like pernickety about everything that kind of as the tour went on I began began to view them in a different light and to be honest kind of by the end of the tour even though I didn't think they had the music yet you kind of felt that they were by hook or by crook, they were going to be huge. Like yeah. they were, they were going to be something special. But uh, having said that, like you, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't have foreseen, for, like from that first tour, which was pre-first album, to in a few years releasing OK Computer. I don't think anyone could have seen that. And people who say they could see it, I think, are just lying. <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> And so coming back to the Franks, I mean, you were in uh, London last week. I heard your mum went over That's as right. well and was yeah, rocking yeah. out in the club yeah. afterwards yeah. with you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> do, do you think that you'll ever call it a day? Do you think, like, we've come too far now, we can't, we can't quit now? Um, I think we've got... I think we've, we've got kind of unfinished business. There's still... Like, I, I, I've, had, I've had this conversation with other bands, and there was... Um, I don't know, do you remember a band called The Farm who were around and... They had that song all together now and groovy train and stuff. They were um, I good buddies with them, and I was talking to the bass player Carol, um, and I was saying like what happened. No, they're back doing the nostalgia tour, but they did split up for ten years or twelve years. And I was talking to him, and he said that like he ended up becoming the songwriter of the band, and he was saying um, they went in and they practiced a load of new songs. This is back just before they split up around ninety eight, ninety nine, and. Um, he was saying they had the songs, like they had the music, they had the melody, they had everything. And he was given the job of, you know, sitting down and and writing the lyrics. And he said he was there with his pen and his paper and everything was done. All he had to do was fit the lyrics into the melody. And he said he had nothing to say. And he, he knew that that was, that was it. He had absolutely nothing to say. He was like, you know, he owned his own house. The kids were in good schools. He was able to afford X, Y, and Z. It's like he he had nothing to rage against, so he had nothing at all to say. And I think we're we haven't we haven't come to that 
stage yet. And of course, you always, you always question it. I mean, it's, it gets harder and harder, like with families and, you know, jobs. It gets harder and harder to kind of go away, like, and, and do tours, like, especially, you know, when we're going over and playing in France and Germany and Spain, like, we like we literally are, like, the biggest audience we, we'd be playing to would be, like, four or five hundred people. So, you know, you're, like, trying to get on to Ryanair, trying to pawn your base off as a, a bag and, you know, trying to do all the tricks to m make the tour work for itself, like you do begin to question it. But I think we, we just still have so much to say. And I mean, as I say, there's about, there's about 20 or 30 songs are there and, you know, we're not going to be happy until they're, they're finished. So there's, you know, there's, there's bits of guitar to finish off, there's lyrics to finish off. And, you know, un until, we, until we get that next record out, you know, we won't be happy. It would be, be as if, you know, we'd be, I don't know, so where, you know, when you, songs, you kind of treat them like people and, and unless you can get them out into the world, you're doing them a disservice. I know they're inanimate objects in one sense, but it's just, it's just a weird thing. And then it's who knows, you know, if there's songs left over from that, maybe we feel the same or maybe we say, no, that's it, no. So it's, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like there's a good enough reason to stop, you know? Yeah, um, it's really hard to uh, talk about 30 years uh, of Frank and Walters in an hour, I've just discovered. But you're playing a 30th anniversary show in Cypress Avenue at the start of December, so that'll be kind of like a nice uh, nice party. Yeah, yeah, it's the Friday before Christmas, the 20th, so we look forward to that. And the Cork gigs are always, are always special, like so. Not like Waterford. Yeah, no, no. We're, 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 we've left Waterford out of this tour, actually, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> yeah. It's over. Cool. We, we well, tried our best, couldn't crack it. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Listen, thanks for the chat and thanks, uh, congratulations on 30 years of Frank and Walter. Nice one. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.